From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. I hope you'll join me. If there's one thing we keep coming back to in these discussions, it's that the industry is changing. The world of interior design and home goods won't look the same in five years as it does today. If you want to stay in front of these changes, there's no better way than the Business of Home newsletter. Delivered every morning, you can start your day with the news that matters most. Subscribe free of charge at www.businessofhome.com newsletter. That's businessofhome.com newsletter. We've been taking a break from new episodes in January and rebroadcasting some of our old favorites in case you missed them the first time around. This conversation I had in December of 2018, a fascinating chat with Bunny Williams, will be the last of our hiatus. We'll be back next week with all new episodes. Thanks for sticking around. We have a great new season in store for you. I can't wait. And now, on with the show. My guest this week is Bunny Williams, who, after 22 years of working at Parrish Hadley, left to open her own firm. Some three decades later, she shares how the industry, from pricing structures to the value of the designer, has changed. So, Bunny, let's start by talking about how the interior design industry feels different today than when you first began your career. When I started out, you... Everybody wanted to go and work for a good firm. That's where you got started. Somebody can decide they want to be a designer and have an Instagram account and a Facebook page and a whatever and kind of convince a lot of people that they are a designer. And we didn't have that 50 years ago. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. true. We had none of that. And you also, what was amazing to me is... All the time that I was at Parrish Hadley, I was learning all the time. And that, I knew what I didn't know. And I think that the experience that I have, or, or Brian, or David, or all of us who've, who've come out of there, is what we know. And there's a lot of knowledge there. And that's when we know what space planning's like. We know when things work. I can look at a piece of paper and say, this isn't going to that isn't going to work. Yeah. I mean, so many architects give me plans of bedrooms I can't put furniture in. I'm thinking, where's the bed going to go? I don't like beds in front of a window. I mean, right. I need a wall. Sure. And, and that's part of what you learned along the way. So in stark contrast to being quick to go out on your own, you actually worked for Parrish Hadley for 22 years before you were finally ready to go out on your own. And, and even then, I remember you've talked about you, you weren't sure if you were comfortable with the business side, right? Tell me about making that leap finally for you? Well, two things that happened. I mean, first of all, um, after all those years, I had my own clients at Parrish Hadley. People were coming to me. I would work for somebody. They would refer their fr- friends. So I had a client base at Parrish Hadley. We learned right away, it's a business. Everything was run very, very uh professionally yes and it is a business sure and it is the business man management that we learned at Parrish Hadley is what we all still do and so tell me about that so back in the day at Parrish Hadley 
how did you charge clients? Was there a design fee? Were you working on an hourly as well? I mean, relative to sort of how we talk about it today, how did you charge back then? Percentage. It was retail, wholesale and retail. So it was your markup? It was okay. in the markup. And then there were uh, hourly for the design fees, uh, design hourly designs if we were doing the architectural part of it. It's still very much the way we do today. And would clients sign a contract back in the day or would they, I mean... It was like two pa- a page. Okay. It was, it weren't, they were not long contracts. Right. A letter of agreement. Okay. So everybody knows what you're doing. I do the same thing here. But it's the paperwork. I mean, I always say, I always say to my clients, I may be the creative force here, but this office that I have, the coordinators and the assistants, they're getting it done. So they're really more important than I am. Because once I pick out the fabric and sketch the chair and know what it's going to be, I never think about it again. We just finished a huge house and, you know, four big trailers of furniture went out. And in one week, an empty house was furnished. Everything. So does that mean you had everything shipped to a warehouse or a facility? Exactly. Okay. Everything goes into a, a New York warehouse. Okay. And is that generally what you do on your projects? Always. So everything is sort of accumulated all together? Exactly. And this was over three years, three and a half years. And so today at Bunny Williams, do you still work on this sort of a markup, this sort of retail net? I do. Uh, I do net plus a percentage. The market's so different today. Um, a number of places. When I first started out, everybody gave a you know a discount to designers. Right. Today, because the market is so different, and we have uh, internet buying. Um, we work on on a cost plus, so the okay. clients know they see the bill for what I paid for it, and then I have a percentage I put on top of that, plus uh, hourly for design and and their design fees. I work so much with architects that um, you know everything. For instance, the tile, the hardware, I don't order that, right? But I choose it. Okay. So I charge a fee for all of that. Sure. And so in the time of Parrish Hadley, was the D&D building sort of the primary resource, right, back in the day? Oh, yes. Right. Oh, yes. And has that changed, or has the dynamic there changed versus the, today? It, I mean, I think the dynamics have changed tremendously because, first of all, in New York City, there are probably a tenth of the sh- unique shops that used to be here. What The shops that I, some antique shops, but some shops, the d- dealer had great personality. Chris Chodoff was a design, was a uh, had a shop on 57th Street. He had antiques, he had new things. It was such style, you just couldn't believe it. Those have disappeared between the rent and also, I think that the, there are there are people who don't shop. I mean, they they don't. They're not curious about it. Um, I have you know I have dealers who say I sell. It's all online. Nobody even comes in to look right. at it. And this is from a design office. I mean, my office is very funny because if they bring me a picture, I said, "Have you sat in this chair?" And I said, don't bring me a picture that you got off the computer. If it's in a shop in New York, I expect you to go down there and look at it, sit in it, feel it. Then you can bring me a picture of it. But don't just sit on the computer and print out for a meeting 20 pictures of things you've never seen. Hmm. They do it all the time. Yes. And, and, and that's the that's the sad thing to me about a young designer not 
you've got to touch and feel you know um you've got to pick up you have to have a fabric to know its hand is it going to make pretty curtains is it too stiff is it there are all these things that go into a decision and furniture particularly i mean People say, oh, brown wood furniture. And I said, when you see a beautiful 18th century faded mahogany um, side cabinet, it makes my heart sing. <laughs> but it's because I'm looking at it. It's And it's not going to be the same in a picture. And so that's interesting to me because today I think – I think of this new entity, Material Bank, for example, right? The online sourcing for sampling and the notion of designers on their computers just going through and getting fabric samples versus coming to the D&D building or wherever. It's hard for me to imagine, as you say. And I'm, I'm surprised that the traffic has gone down so dramatically at the D&D building, for example, because so many designers are no longer coming to the building. They say, no, no, we don't really go there, or maybe we go there a few times a year. I don't understand how you can really be at the top of your game and not go see things. I, I see something different all the time. I'll go in a showroom and I'm like, oh, look at that table. Who's making that? That's right. interesting. Um, and I wouldn't find that on the computer because I don't know who it is. So in the computer, you're going back over and over to the same old thing you already know. And I think I, I'm always surprised when I look at magazines how often a designer will be using the same thing in projects. And, I mean, I do sometimes, but right. you've got to mix it up and make each room a little unique. Right, and you think that might be because they haven't seen a lot of new things or sort of been inspired by things. Well, and you can't, you know, it's it's like going into an antique shop. You may be looking for a chest of drawers, but you get in there and you see a chandelier or a unique mirror and you think I've just got to find a place for this it's so special sure finding and the hunt I mean whether you're in the flea market in Paris or you know looking at shops all over the country if you if you don't go hunt your work is never going to quite have a magic in 1991, Buddy entered her first foray into retail with Treage, a garden shop based on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, opened in partnership with designer John Roselli. While the business may have struggled against the rise of the digital age, the long-term result of the partnership, Bunny says, was well worth it. Now, when did you first meet John Roselli? Well, I knew John from his shops um, at Parrish Hadley. Mr. Parrish loved John Roselli, loved his shop. All decorators did. It was the go-to place for finding great accessories and objects and furniture and quirky things. And uh, so I would go there um, to shop for, for clients and um, that I was working on with Mrs. Parrish or Mr. Hadley. And uh, we one one spring... I was in there, and I said, uh, John, in the fall, we always all, he had a bulb order, so he'd be ordering bulbs, and he'd put in, I'd put in some wholesale bulb orders with him in the fall. Okay. So the bulbs were coming in, and um, he, I said something about the Chelsea Flower Show. I said, I've never been. And he, he said, neither have I. He said, let's go. And uh, I said, oh. And I was married at the time, and um Anyway, I went to my husband and and said, do you want to go, John, and I want to go to the Tales Flower Show? And he said, no, go ahead. And when we got there, we had an amazing time. And all around the Chelsea Flower Show were all these garden-related things. People were selling things. And I said to John, 
why doesn't somebody have a great garden shop in New York? I mean, you can't find any of this. And he said, well, let's open one. (laughs) And so that night he called his nephew, Jonathan, and he said, get the lease on this space on 75th Street. And it was an old uh, blacksmith shop, and it had had been a carriage house. So it had these beautiful carriage house doors. And John had a paint studio next to it. And he said, this space is just divine. So I trusted him, and we decided we started buying the next day uh, for triage. And we got back, and I went to see the space, and it was the dark hole of Calcutta. <laughs> there was a, a pickup truck in the middle of the space, and a welding machine, the biggest welding machine. The only thing it had going for it were these beautiful carriage house doors. And uh, anyway. Uh, I said, okay, we can, you know, he moved out. And I mean, it was unbelievable. And when we, the great thing is that when we were doing the construction, it was a tin roof and it was sort of falling down. And when we pulled it off, we found out that there had been a huge skylight. Wow. And the minute the light poured down into this space, it became truly magic. Sure. And it had old brick walls and kind of a crumbling atmosphere. And so we opened this great shop that really was a destination for anybody you know it was a different era it was a time when people shopped you know you went around the designers came in people from out of town came in it was a destination so remind us of when it opened it was um it must have been in about 1990 i'd started 88 so it was probably about 1991 Roughly 1991, and that was a time, as you say, where people shopped and they came in and saw things that they loved. We were always having parties. We were always having an art show for people or a launch of something, book signings, and it really just, everybody couldn't wait to come to triage and we you know we have all these creative people around and Howard Christian who managed it for a while and he could make it look you would just go in there and people would just go I can't believe this he's a great stylist and we were always and John and I went probably four times a year to Europe to shop between Maison Objet and all the markets and it's it's hard work. I mean, you're up, sure. and we were buying and and uh, getting up at the standing freezing cold in the French market at four o'clock in the morning in the dark with a flashlight waiting. But it's so much fun. I mean, it's just the hunt that yeah. that is exciting, and we loved having it. But times changed. I mean, all of a sudden we saw people weren't going in shopping, and we moved. We opened on on Lexington Avenue. Um, and did all of it sort of tabletops and one of a kind. But you realize the internet had come in, people could buy online, yeah. and retail just went down. And, and when did you first start to see signs of retail declining? When did things really start to become more challenging for triage? Well, I think we had, I would say we had about 12 or 15 years of good business. Okay, And then you saw just a, a, a big change. Um, the older designers who supported it were, you know, retiring, right. and the new group wasn't shopping so much. Yeah. I mean, um, they were shopping, but they're shopping online. And I do think that all of the online, the, the computer and the ability to buy online changed everything. And we weren't ahead of the game. Right. So at one point you talked about putting triage online, but that never really happened, right? John doesn't even have a cell phone. 
<laughs> John is not an embracer of technology. No, doesn't uh, understand it at all. Okay, but we should point out that we don't want to skip the best part of the partnership between you and John that came as a result. You and John got married. There was a divorce, among other things. We had the baby first, and then we got married. I think yes. that um, I think that the summer that we spent buying for triage and launching triage, I had the most extraordinary time with a partner. I mean, it's not my partner, who I realized that we were bookends. I mean, we were meant to be together. Yeah. And, um, you know, to a very close friend of mine, we just celebrated his wedding this weekend, and... I said, these are bookends. They are people that you know belong together and that all the volumes that come between them will all be about common interests hmm. and common experiences. And that's when you have a great relationship. And what a gift to have a partner like that in your life. I agree. Unable to profit from the garden shop, Bunny and John closed triage in 2015. But that wasn't the end of retail for the designer. She had launched home furnishings manufacturer Beeline, which was later renamed Bunny Williams Home in 2008, after struggling to find the perfect drinks table. In light of the company's 10th anniversary, Bunny uncovers the challenges of manufacturing abroad, building and retaining talent, and making the brand relevant for the next generation. How did the idea to launch Beeline first come about? I believe every chair needs to have a little table next to it so you can put your drink down. and so. I would spend hours trying to find these little drinks tables, and I thought, this is ridiculous. Why don't I just design some and make them? I also found it impossible to find the perfect bedside table. I like a table a certain height. I like a drawer. I like a shelf. You can put your books on it. I don't want some dinky little table that doesn't function. Right. And they were hard to find. So we started designing for just our jobs, right. pieces of furniture, little drinks tables. Sure. And... I began to explore the idea of possibly make, doing a line. And I went to High Point. I had someone take me down to High Point. I'd never even been. And I found I was very disappointed because, to me, the furniture companies were about... They weren't designers. They were making and selling furniture. Hmm. And they had this idea that everything should match, that there had to be a suite. So if you had a bed, you had the matching night tables and the matching chair. and the ma I don't decorate like that. hate it. They also think that if you make something, it can come in 10 different finishes. Well, I don't agree with that. I think that you design a piece of furniture, and it's either meant to be black or wood, or it, it's its uniqueness is... The design, the material is a part of the design. I never got this idea that that would maybe look good in five different colors. So I didn't like, I kind of didn't jive with a lot of the big manufacturers. Okay. So I said to myself, let me try to do this on my own. Very naive, but <laughs> it was fun. I right, mean, everything's yeah. an adventure. I've been to China. I've been to Vietnam. I've been to Southeast Asia. I've been to Honduras. I've been to these places. Fascinating. Absolutely. I wouldn't trade it for a moment. I learned a lot. And also, I wanted to do it myself instead of just be a licensing okay all other designers go to a company and they design it and it's a licensing agreement and you're completely dependent on that company to sell it manufacture it and do everything 
Now, maybe that is a simpler way than what we do, <laughs> but yeah. we manufacture our furniture. I wanted it in stock, so I think a lot of designers don't necessarily want to wait 24 weeks that they'd like to know, I've got a client and I could get this table tomorrow. The lamp can be drop shipped in two days. So it, um, it, it evolved. And lamps, I mean, I find it very, I found it very hard to find really interesting lamps. And I love porcelain. I love interesting glazes. I also think a lamp needs to have a pretty base on it. It needs to be finished. When I was at Parish Hadley, we used to have to buy a vase, draw it, scale the base, draw the base, scale the lampshade, have the custom-made lampshade. So one lamp, what to get one lamp, it went from a carved base, it had to be wired, and a custom-made shade. Well, there's you're not going to make any money doing that. So I said, let's make some good-looking lamps that have a pretty base and comes with a shade yeah. and at an affordable price. I very much wanted our line to be more affordable that it was um things people could think about it's not the least it's not the cheapest but it is beautifully made i mean if you open a drawer there's it's finished you can turn our furniture upside down the bottom is finished i mean it's quality i want people to think of it as something they're going to have the rest of their life so you went on all these asian sourcing trips where did you end up vietnam with vietnam yes okay and i'm going uh, next week. You're going next week Before to, Christmas. to check on some of your production? Yes, we have an, our spring collection. We go check on the prototypes. Kyle Marshall, who's my creative director, um, we go there. They have all the prototypes made. We look at them, adjust them, and while we make all what we want adjusted, and that night and the next day, they remake it. And we go back the third day, and there it is. It's incredible. So tremendous capabilities, it sounds like. And and Vietnam felt better to you than China, Singapore? And actually, the uh, Vietnam, the factory is owned by an Englishman. Hmm. And um, he has been in the furniture business for years and has gone um, everywhere. It's also a factory that will make a small quantity. Okay. You, you, can't, you can't go to a factory that manufactured for a company like restoration hardware because they make a million of something right. yeah i make 10 tables now i have to fill up a container but i've got 10 of something and 10 of another and that's you need to find a high-end smaller factory who will make in that quantity okay so they're making your case goods are they making your lamps no the lamps okay. are still coming in china from china okay because we found got these it. people in china that do hand painting and and glazing got it okay so are you affected by all the tariff controversy yes. that's going on? Of course. And so you're thinking you may have to raise prices soon? What I was going to do, because it makes me so mad, I'm just going to put the regular price and I'm going to put the tariff, whatever the tariff is, as the cost. I mean, everybody knows it's happening. Right. So I wouldn't raise the price. I'm just going to say the lamp is $350 and the tariff is X, right? Uh-huh. Right. And at cost. What I don't understand is... This the lamps that I sell. There, there's other people who make lamps in this country that are beautiful. They're three times the cost. The consumer can either have it domestically made, pay so much more, or you can import it and have quality at, at a cheaper price. I mean, every 
you know, our clothes, everything. I mean, what did we? I mean, I believe in American made, and I'm I'm actually trying to open a. I don't want to run this business. I'm trying to find somebody to do it. But I want. I bought a building in the little town I live in in Falls Village, Connecticut. Okay. And we're restoring. It was a '50s grocery store, and we're making a space. And I would like somebody to run it as a cooperative for crafts people in the northwest corner there are potters glass blowers whatever but that business would have to be run as a cooperative and the people would have to consign their product we would sell it and they pay so much to and it won't be it's not a it's not a big business model right i just want to do it because i think it's important to the little town i live in and i think it's important to the artisans but you um you can't go to American potter and buy his plates and mark it up what you'd have to to put it in a retail establishment because nobody's going to buy them. They just won't pay for them. Yeah. So that's what you've learned along the way with what became Bunny Williams' home several years into Beeline. It it sounds like people were counseling you that that really it should bear your own name. Yes? Yes. It it was um, very interesting having a business and um, I'm a bit modest about I, I find all the self-promotion kind of overwhelming though we have to do it sure I don't like doing it but <laughs> it's part of I mean if you look at Bunny's Eye my Instagram I mean I may pay, post something once a month but you know everybody else is posting five times a day and I'm like okay I've seen your dog I've seen your house I've seen you I've seen you go to this party I saw you go to the grocery store do I really need to know all this and so I um post when the mood hits me if I remember how we've just moved into a new apartment I posted a picture yesterday of one of my dogs on the sofa saying that Annabelle was trying to decide if she was going to even like being here (laughs) so there was a little picture of the living room I haven't done much for about that but you know other people would have been posting the progress every single day of course and they do but that's never felt comfortable for you even calling the store bunny williams home wasn't your first inclination because that seemed a little much for you well it's funny how you know you you said when we were talking before i mean it is as everyone said people are going to come here because they want something that you've designed or a part of it they want to be a part of this and use it and We've had a, a, a game change at, at Bunny Williams' home, and um, there were people who I were hoping that I'd made them partners in the business. And I said, we were having a discussion of, like we do now, where are we going to be in 10 years? What, right. are we, what, what is it? You know, I, I can't read the glass ball. But anyway, they brought in a, a branding company and a great expense, and I they wanted to do it. I said, fine. Anyway, so we went through this, this and that. And, the other. and they came back to me afterwards, and they s- had this whole kind of layout of what they thought things should look like. And they said, we think you should change the name of the company. From Bunny Williams Home to something else? To something like Ever Ready. I mean, there was this <laughs> list of names that I just, I was shell-shocked. Yeah. And then I said, you know, it's very interesting. I said, Carl Lagerfeld did not ask to change the name of Chanel when he took over as the design director. And what is what I was asking for is how do you make Bunny Williams home, which I'm not a 
kid. I'm not a young person. Right. But it's relevant to young people. How do you make the next generation want that? I mean, look at the generations that still want Ralph Lauren. Look at the generations that still want Chanel. So you take this, and this is where I get out of my comfort zone, but I do have something to say. I do have knowledge. I do know what a good piece of furniture is. I know what something's interesting. I do know how to put rooms together. So how do you make this? And this is when you ask about what I'm working on, what is the future. That's what's interesting to me now. It's having young people around me and saying, okay, you can be critical, but how do we make what we're doing relevant. Right. And so you've mentioned that there was a real game change for the business. A few key players left, uh, a couple of people who thought they were going to be made partner. And so you found yourself having to look at the business anew. Well, what I found is, after being shocked, because it came as a blow. So you had no idea? None. Okay. And which, again, hurt, because when I left Parish Hadley, I had discussed that with them for two years. We had, a, we had a, such a close relationship. You, you had a plan and and, and right. there was what are we going to do about it could things change but but and you know when I got my first office the first guest I had was Mrs. Parrish Aww. just walked up the steps hi and I remained yeah. friends with them and I have so many people here who have come and talked to me about their future right and some have some stay some go that's part of life, sure. but they're just ways of doing it. So unfortunately, it came as a surprise to you. Some some key players left the business right. who had played an integral role. So what did you do? Tell me how you handled all of that. Well, interestingly enough, you um, you take a deep breath. Okay. And the person, I needed to hire a new creative director, and I was very lucky. I, I actually went to... Um, a headhunter who deals in our business and hired um, a young man who'd been with Ralph Lauren, designing for Ralph Lauren, has been to Vietnam, knows the furniture business. I was like, wow, this is good. And when uh, he and I get along really well and he is always bringing me something. He brought me a little book that he had of a furniture designer from um, sort of, it's, it's late... It's almost late Biedermeyer, but and quite modernist. I'd never heard of him. I'm like, wow. I mean, I'm stimulated. And so I hired a creative director. And then what's interesting, I just worked and promoted within the staff that was there. Because I often think you have people who are loyal to you, mm-hmm. who want or given a breath of fresh air that they can do something more. So right. the um, a lady who is, young lady who's now uh, designing is running the business side of it, mm-hmm. started here as a receptionist. And I like that. Sure, as you worked your own way up. And so the, things got changed, and everybody's happier. Sure. They see that their wings can be spread, that's, that they're having a chance to uh, respond, and that's been exciting. Glass bowl or not, Bunny's frontline perspective of the retail, manufacturing, and design divisions of the industry give her great insights. In our final few minutes together, she shared the new consumer habits and changing lifestyles disrupting our industry. What's next for the trade? How do you see the role of the interior designer changing? I don't know where design's going to go in the future. People hire me for a lot of reasons. Working with the architect, landscape designer. I, I do all this. I mean, yeah. uh, 
I have a lot of experience. I think that it's harder for a younger person who doesn't have that experience. It's going to come out pretty quick that you don't have it. You know, no clients aren't naive, particularly, and my projects are big. Even some of my younger clients, I mean, one of our clients called up and they said, oh, we've bought this house in Florida. It's so ugly. But we, we're we going to buy a bigger house one day, but we just wanted something. And would you do it for a limited amount of money? And we said, of course. And I said, I can do both. Sure. But I've done two big houses for them and they love them and they don't want to not have us involved. And so we right. sat down and figured out how we could do it. And uh, then the wife said, you know, now we really do want it nice. <laughs> and I said, well, you better talk to the husband about the budget. because. <laughs> uh, but I think that you, you know, any, I don't care who you're, ta- who, what professional you're talking to, you're pretty, pretty soon going to know what their knowledge is. Sure. And I think that a young designer who hasn't been through the ropes, who hasn't worked for a firm, who hasn't been involved in architectural projects, who hasn't, thought about the landscape the client's going to know that fairly quickly right and they therefore will not have the confidence in them that i think they probably have in me or david kleinberg or brian mccarthy because we have the background sure and all of you work for big firms and for a long period of time and learned a lot along the way so it sounds like part of your advice to designers today is to work. work somewhere else, right? And and really learn the ropes, whether that's five years or however long. It's more than 15 minutes. <laughs> okay, you seem to feel pretty strongly about that. You know, you asked this question about how do we sell our product? Is a showroom the way to do it? We Our sales are up a lot this year, and the traffic in the showroom is down. So this is the whole thing. This is what I come back to is that, um, but what happens, I think, is they do come in once. They sit in it. They see it. They then can go sell it because they've been there. Right. They don't have to come back. It's not like it's an antique shop where the merchandise changes or not. But I think that we get repeat orders from designers all over the country because they have been in the showroom. Yeah. It's not like they've never seen it. And they can call up and say, oh, I want John's sofa and this job and I want to do this and that. So Rebecca can you know help them but even though there isn't new traffic every day i think that we needed to have a place that people could see the breadth of the collection and the orders which are going up are not reflective of the foot traffic but more the online business you know and magazines have changed um i think that we all um need to embrace and tell our story, uh, I am working on my website to be my magazine. Interesting. Tell me what you mean by that. Meaning that not only will there be product for sale, but there'll be stories. Okay. There'll be why you use it, why you put this together, in a way sort of teaching articles about what I do. Wow. So you're creating your own content around it. Right. Do you see yourself on a path to sort of step away more? You know, I love to work, unfortunately. I mean, I've worked since I was 20 years old, yeah. and I love being creative. I love I love being creative, and I love the world that we have. I mean, we can get on a plane and go to Paris and shop, and, you know, I, my, my travel and my life have all um, 
sort of melt. John always says one of the reasons that we sold the house in the Dominican Republic, he said, they don't make anything there. I could never go find a, a good metal person or a good ceramicist or anything. He said, right. I end up with a house in a one country where they don't make anything. It drove him crazy. But, um, you know, we... I, yes, I'd love to maybe go down to four days a week and okay. have a longer weekend. Right. Uh, and with a great staff, you can do that. Um, I, I keep saying that, but then I'm on a plane every week, and I'm going to Vietnam before Christmas. And then I have a book coming out in the spring, which will mean a lot of travel for the book. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so what's the book that's coming out in the spring? Um it's an, another design book, and the book is called Affairs with Other Houses. <laughs> and so this is your work on other projects that you've done, and then uh, Affair with a House, just for people that might not know, was a beautiful book that you did about your own home and the years you spent fixing it up. And it's um, been the best-selling design book because it's so personal. Yes. Uh, and I think other people want to do that book but you know it was fun I mean it was John in the kitchen and his recipes and us in the greenhouse and the way we live and the china closet and the whatever it's a very lived in house and and it's fun to share all of that right I mean people love getting to see your home and your garden and you're very generous about sharing all of that people love to see your garden and John's incredible collections of things things I think today one of the big differences and that changed design the house I have in Falls Village, I bought 37 years ago. I paid $110,000 for it. And we had no money. I mean, we were, it was a struggle. I stripped the walls. There were rooms that had no furniture in it for five years. And little by little, I've made that house special, the gardens. We've done the barn, built pool. I mean, it's gone. It's crazy. But I never moved from there. And I think today, the millennials don't think of permanent you know they don't want to buy the apartment because they might not want it in three years and that affects design it affects what you buy because if you're not going to be here why should you spend a lot of money on anything i've always bought that i have it and we the things in our new apartment the sofa in the living room i bought 30 years ago yeah it's beautiful. I mean, you can't replace it. But I think of wanting to own something for a long time. And I think that's the big difference of if you talk to a 30-year-old or 32-year-old, do they even think they want to own that chair forever? And do you think that's a temporary situation? Do you, do you think they grow into wanting things longer term? The reason, in, again, is our lifestyle, internet, computers – People used to go to work at a bank, and they had a job for a period of time. They looked at a career. No more. Yes. And jobs change. Uh, A lot of people do things online. They don't even work in an office. Right. So the the idea that it's stability. Now, if you have children, you've got to stay in a place where there's schools, and you may move to a place. And once you have children, you're going to think – you're not going to move as much because the kids have friends and they make a life. And that's sort of – that's my client for Bunny Williams' home is somebody who's said, okay, I'm moving to Darien or I'm moving to Charlotte, North Carolina. I've got kids and they're – we're going to stay here for a while. But again, you know, I think with what education costs today, it's extremely expensive to then pay for your lifestyle, pay for the education of your children, and then have money left over to really decorate your house. So 
So that's one of the big challenges facing the design industry today. Yes, and it's not that these people are – there is money there, but the lifestyle of people's – and they want to travel. Yeah. People have to get involved in their house. And, you know, I grew up in Virginia. Everybody – your house was your sanctuary. Right. You know, I can remember mommy, you know, setting the table with my mother when I was a little girl and going down the road to my godmother's, and she was having a party, and she wanted to borrow something from my mother. I mean, housing and living was it. And I think that – and even when I first came to New York, we had a tiny apartment. We would entertain there because it was cheaper to make tuna wiggle casserole and have a salad and have all your friends over with a cheap bottle of white wine than go out to a restaurant. But I knew how to do that, and we had fun doing it. And I think that um, I hope that people will realize that their home is something special and not just a roof over your head and a place to sleep because you're out all the time. Well, I said to John, I said, once we've moved in this new apartment, I said, I am determined every other week to have friends over all age groups. And, you know, even if you order Chinese food or whatever, it doesn't have to be a big deal. Right. But put people together yeah. to talk and to enjoy each other and I love having different age groups and you always go away thinking this is special I mean if if when you do go to somebody's house and there's a group of people you come away from it thinking wow why don't we do this more often well and you have such a different relationship with someone when you've been to their home right yeah absolutely and also you learn from people where they've been what they've seen somebody been on a trip um you know even discussing politics which you're not supposed to talk about but it's interesting and i find it interesting to talk to somebody that i disagree with and i think that i just hope I just hope, I mean, it does take time, but it's so enjoyable. I mean, running a house um, takes time, but I actually love doing that. I mean, I love thinking about it. I don't always want to be in the kitchen cooking for two days, so I'm always thinking, okay, how can I go pick up a stew from, but the good thing in New York is you can go anywhere and pick it up and take it home and heat it up and put it on a bowl and open a bottle of wine, and you can have a dinner party. And I know you feel strongly about the education for interior designers that can possibly be improved. What are your thoughts there? I think that for residential interior design, there's a big difference. Interior design covers a lot of things. Interior design covers hospitals, hotels, you know, corporate headquarters. There's interior design is a big word. For residential interior design, for what I do, I think that you're going to learn more in a design office Mm. because there are fewer people who are going to be good at this. There are a lot of people who can go out and get a job in corporate interior design. I mean, how many hotel rooms have you been in and thought, who designed this room? (laughs) Right? I mean, nothing even fits. You're thinking, is this design? I mean, is this... so? I think that the design schools obviously have to cater to their student and the student who's going to get a job. Right. And I think that um, if people want to do what I do, the best thing is to go intern and or work, but work for a good period of time for a top designer and wherever you are, because you will learn a lot. See, I mean, you. I remember at Parish Hadley seeing being on the first what we call installation, and you realize. 
how many decisions went into every one of those things for it to arrive on time and put in place. And Mrs. Parrish was adamant about when you put a room in, it needs to be finished. And she said, you know, you'll lose a great client over not delivering a lampshade. The pillows had to be on the sofa. The, everything. So everything had to be in place, and you've, and you've carried that on in your own firm. Because that's the only way the client, when they walk in and see it for the first time, can go, wow. You do flowers, and we just finished this big house. And, you know, the clients came in, and we said, you can come Friday morning, we'll be finished. And everybody's in tears. I'm in tears. They're in tears. When they walk through the door and see everything for the first time, it's, it, it's an emotional scene. But how fantastic, though. What a, what a gift to be able to give them that, right? Yes. Sit in every room and, you know, go, wow. Yeah. Well, Bunny, thank you again for letting us come and spend time in your office and, and visiting with you. This has really been a fantastic conversation and, uh, and a privilege for us. So thank you for your time. And well, I'm so happy to have you, really. My guest this week has been interior design legend Bunny Williams. Thank you again for joining us. The show is Business of Home, and I'm Dennis Scully. If you like what you hear, please feel free to subscribe, tell a friend about the show, and most of all, leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you again to our sponsor and our producers. You can find us at businessofhome.com or on Facebook or Instagram. We'll see you next week.